The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. In Daniel 8 this morning, uh, did an excellent job of reading our passage for us this morning. This is, again, one of those, like, uh, what is going on? This is freaking me out. Um, yep, that's okay. We're going to work through this together. We are in the book of Daniel, that chapter 8. Um, Here's what we're going to do. I am, I'm going to pray, and then we'll kind of talk about, we'll, we'll, I'll lay out how we're going to understand this passage, or work through it together. Uh, but because Mita read it for us, we're not going to go back and read through every verse again together. We're going to kind of pick out and select verses as we go along. But that being said, let's start by praying, <laughs> and of all chapters, asking God to help us understand what is going on in this, in this chapter. Father, as we look at Daniel chapter 8, this is one of those moments where very clearly you gave this vision to him, and even Daniel struggled to understand it. So God, we pray that by your spirit, as we work through it this morning, that we would have patience and that we would pick up the main things that you're trying to show us in this book. And then most importantly, that we would see that you have us amidst all the turmoil of our days. We pray all those in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I have been watching uh, the most recent Godzilla movies with my kids lately. Um, <laughs> I enjoy Godzilla. I enjoy just like monster bash movies. You know, you just they show up and then just destroy everything. Like that's just a lot of fun to me. Like to me, I'm just kind of like, what's just like more destruction and mayhem? Like this is just great. Like just stomp through Tokyo, go for it. You know, like it was a lot of fun. Uh, Obviously, I'm sure you're familiar with Godzilla. He is one of the most iconic movie characters of all time. Um, do I have a limit on how far I can go? Am I tethered here? No? Okay. Am I, okay. Here we go. I just have to look at the screen. That's all. So here's Godzilla, king of the monsters. Um, Godzilla is um, comes out in 1950, 19, late, mid-1950s, um, and the purpose of what Godzilla was, the original character and the, the original design of the movie was effectively, in Japanese culture, they had been, if you remember, obviously decimated by not one but two atomic bombs. Um, you had Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Uh, pop quiz, anybody know the plane that those bombs were dropped from? And no, okay, look, you guys, here's the nerd in the room. That's the nerd. Um, so uh, they had been decimated by these atomic bombs. And that you will notice that the, the question of human morality and existential questions about science and human existence permeate all through Japanese culture, even up, to, up until today, because of those two events. And what happened with Godzilla, the premise behind it is basically these atomic bombs woke up these ancient monsters and they can know they now have to reckon with their reality. They won't go back. Which is a face for what they were facing with the atomic, atomic arms, right? Once you drop a bomb, there's no going back. We've now entered a whole new world of human existence. And so the Godzilla movies, while they're, you know, monster bash, lots of fun, you know, just here we go, you know, monster and all that stuff. They are a visual meditation a visual of trying to understand what is it like to live in a world where we can't put, put atomic bombs back in the closet. So they're a visual story for a real deep, important lesson. This happens all the time, right? This happens all over stories like, this is why you know you watch The Lord of the Rings, you're kind of like, oh, I can relate to all these people, but I'm never going to have a magic sword and special rings or anything like that. Like, it happens all the time in how we process the world around us. And that's what's actually going on in Daniel 8. Daniel 8 is, in a certain sense, um, not about, most certainly, it's not about the 2020 election. Um, Daniel 8 is not about COVID-19. Daniel 8 is not about how we kind of, you know, pick it apart and apply, um, figure out the details of what this is talking about. It is a story to help us understand the doom and gloom that we all feel, especially the doom and gloom that Israel felt and their persecution and their suffering. They were under the boot of the Babylonian Empire, and they were not seeing any soon, you know, any relief to any time soon, and they were trying to figure out, God, what do we do moving forward? And God gives them Daniel 8, God in a certain sense, 
He says, okay, gather around, children. We're going to sit around this campfire, and I'm going to tell you a monster story. That's what happens in Daniel 8. Daniel 8 is, in effect, they are trying to figure out how do we live in the suffering, and how do we live as God's people moving forward. Remember, uh, we've kind of t- quoted this several times. James K.A. Smith has basically said, the point of apocalyptic literature is not predictive, but unmasking, unveiling the realities around us as for what they really are. And so here we come into Daniel chapter 8, and we have a ram and a goat, and we're going to try to figure out what they are all about. But in the middle of all that, here, and before we get to lay out what we're going to do, there are four times that the word understand is used in this passage, which is trying to underline or point at there is something that God is trying to get our attention with. And this is a huge story, two horns, one's bigger than the other, all this stuff, you know, conspicuous horns and Bro, I don't even live in a world where horns are like a normal reality. Like, I don't live on a farm, you know? <laughs> I live in Manchester, New Hampshire. There ain't no horns around me except for the ones that are getting honked, right? So, verse 15 to 17. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to, quote, the, the, the underline, understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of Ulii. Uh, and I called Gabriel, and it called Gabriel, make this man understand. Note that word, understand the vision. So he came near and I, where I stood, and when he came, and then we're going to skip down, but he said to me, understand, O son of man. So there's three times this word being understand is being used in this passage. Right here in the heart of it, I think 15 to 17 is the emotional heart of the passage. And then, to get to the end of the verse, at the end of the chapter, and Daniel says, I rose and went up to the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. <laughs> so if we get through this chapter and you're kind of like clear as mud, you know, <laughs> don't worry. You're in good company. Daniel's with you. But this book, this chapter really is about God trying to get our attention. And it isn't about who is the antichrist of the world and all that stuff. Rather, it's giving us an insight kind of God calling us into his movie theater and getting to understand the world from God's perspective which ultimately when God when God translates it to you is that when the days are dark God's got you he has you so here's the main point of the passage know that God's got you when the days are dark that's the main point know that God's got you when the days are dark that's really what's going on in this chapter that's the payoff I mean it's all these crazy animals and all this stuff and here's what we're going to do this chapter, it has a vision, and unlike chapter 7, it's got the interpretation right there. You don't have to buy a commentary. It's right there. <laughs> Actually, you do need to buy a commentary because it's still just kind of like, okay, uh, <laughs> give me a little bit more. <laughs> so, but what we're going to do is we're going to explain the vision. We're going to talk through all that's going on in the vision, and then we're going to swim back around, and we're going to see how it applies to help us not lose heart. How to understand that God's got us. So we're going to kind of comb through this passage real quick, and we're going to explain what's going on, and then we'll swing back through, and we'll look at four ways in which this passage helps us understand that God's with us. Okay? Cool with that? Are you guys on board? I know it's cold, and the mass and all that stuff, but... Okay, verse 1 to 8. Verse 1 to 8, we got a ram, and got a goat. Um, by the way, I will send out my, my sermon notes, and for this part... I may read more than I normally do, just so that I get it exactly right. Because <laughs> I can't kind of riff on what exactly is going on here. So Daniel sees himself in Persia, and he sees a ram with two horns, right? One horn is higher than the other, and this higher horn comes up for, it comes uh, up after the first, right? So it's kind of like you're coming over like a, over a hill, and he sees one horn over the other, and oh, look, they're both on a ram. Okay. This is an aggressive ram charging, and no beast, nothing can stand before it, nothing can protect others from it. Um, and so it becomes this dominant animal, this huge beast, right? Think of Godzilla size running around, destroying everything. And then all of a sudden, Daniel sees a goat with a conspicuous horn. I mean, I don't know what a conspicuous horn looks like. I mean, is it like crooked or something? Like, I don't know. I just legit don't know farm animals. Like, I'm just, but we're just going to say, okay, moving on. <laughs> it's got a conspicuous horn, comes up out of the west, and, and begins to take over, right? This goat comes and destroys with rage, destroys the, uh, destroys the ram, strikes him, knocks him down, and tramples him down to the ground, right? 
you know, just like any sort of like, you know, big football bowl match, like one mascot destroys the other mascot and then stomps on his face, right? Destroys it. The goat becomes exceedingly great and his, at the peak, the horn breaks and it is replaced by four horns. So you got this conspicuous horn that gets replaced by four horns. All right. I'm telling you, it's a vision. It's not the way I wrote it. Okay. So then that's, that's the ram of the goat, verses 1 to 8. So here I'm going to read verse 20 to 22 because unlike Daniel 7, where we kind of have to piece things together, Daniel 8 provides us with the interpretation. Here is what Daniel 8, 20 to 22 says. This is related to the interpretation. Okay. As for the ram, this is uh, Gabriel speaking. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Medea and Persia. Oh, okay. That's straight to, straight, pretty easy to follow. The goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken, in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not one with his power. Okay, so here's what happens, right? Uh, the, the literal interpretation is just quite simply, um, there were the key, the Maduro, Medea Persian alliance between these two kingdoms. And Persia was the stronger of the two. And it was an unequal alliance between these two kingdoms. Persia was stronger than Medea, so that's why one horn was larger than the other when it comes up and is rolling around and stomping everybody. So, pretty straightforward. It says the next kingdom is Greece, and the little horn is the first king. That would have been Alexander the Great. You know, the surprising thing about this whole chapter is Alexander the Great, who is quite literally one of the greatest military leaders in all of human history, is basically a footnote about a little conspicuous horn in the chapter in the Bible. Like, so it's showing God's perspective on things, not our history book's perspective on things. So Alexander the Great destroys and takes over everything. He takes over the whole known world. And then when he dies at a young age of, like, what, 30, late 30s, something like that, 39? I did not know we had the Daniel expert in here. What's <laughs> going on? At 32. All right, I'll be looking at Jen to make sure I'm on point. Jen, am I right? Okay. <laughs> so when he dies at 32, four kings take over after him. These are the four empires that basically represent the four horns that follow after him. These four different kingdoms are the four horns that replace him. Oh, see, I had 32 down in my notes. I don't know why I was asking you, Jen. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, that's the quite literal interpretation is basically saying like it, from God's perspective these are two like gigantic raging beasts but really like amidst all the weirdness about them it's really just kind of a picture of what's going on with the politics today so the strike the thing about this before we get into talking about the little horn we'll talk about the little horn the striking thing about this is that liberal interpreters of, the, of this book will say this is so accurate and so on point with the, the way in which Israel's history moves forward, there's no way this was written before it happened. So, Book of Daniel, six centuries before Jesus, all this stuff happens, and the, they, would, they would say that this is probably written like two centuries before Jesus was born. But that, that kind of like misses the whole point of this book, is that this is God calling the shots before it happens, right? They, they would say that this is so accurate, strikingly. We're going to talk about the little horn. You're going to begin to see, like, wow, this is, like, like vividly accurate. But the point of this being written six centuries or four centuries before it all happens is that God is not limited by human knowledge or human responding to human activity. He's not limited by history or what kind of, like, he's not waiting for the next episode of Breaking Bad to come out to understand what happens, Right? God knows the script before it all plays out. He knows and guides the future and wills uh, will, and he governs the governments of the world. He's, he's in charge. You'll notice that God never gets up from his seat in this picture. God sits, he's unflustered, he's unbothered by what's happening because he wrote it all out. All right, now the little horn. Verse 8 to 14. Let's see. Verse, uh, I'm sorry, 8 to 14, or verse 9 to 14. Out of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great towards the south, towards the east, and towards the glorious land. The glorious land, that's the term for Israel, right? 
it grew great even to a host to the host of heaven and some of the same host uh, and some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled them on them it became great even as great as the prime, as the prince of the host so that might be a term related to God himself right even God himself this this little horn is attacking this there's a spiritual dynamic going on here and the regular burnt offering that was taken away from him so talking about God's temple in Israel and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown and the host will be given over to it together and the regular burnt offering because of transgression and it will throw down truth to the ground and it will act and prosper then I heard a holy one speaking and an, another holy one said to the one who spoke for how long is the vision concerning the great burnt offering the transgression that will make desolate and the giving over the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot and he said to me 230 I'm sorry 2300 evenings and mornings then the sanctuary shall be restored to its full to its rightful state so the little horn here attacks israel has attacks angelic uh, creatures and, and beings um, but what is it like what does he do he attacks the main focus of the the little horns attack is it attacks israel's worship right he goes after israel's worship and identity and its existence he takes away the burnt offerings throws them to the sanctuary and he tramples truth underground right then daniel hears and he's like okay what is going on here how do we understand this okay let me read verses 15 to 19 and then um and then we'll kind of like understand what's going on here and how this is actually like quite literally fulfilled so then i um let's see i'm sorry I'm going to just skip here, and we're going to talk about who the little horn is, just for the sake of time. You guys cool with that? We understand what's going on here, right? Little horn. Um, what happened after? So we had Alexander the Great, that little conspicuous horn that breaks into four kingdoms. One of those four kingdoms, out of that four kingdoms, comes this guy named Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus Epiphanes. Can we put this slide up? Antiochus Epiphanes. He was. Uh, See, that guy, he got a real bad nose job. That guy, it did not go turn well for him. Antiochus Epiphanes, he um, reigned after, uh, after Alexander the Great came out of the, uh, the Seleucid province. That's one of the four kingdoms. Sorry, these are like, I don't, I just don't like read Greek on a like, on an hourly basis. It's just kind of like hard for me to keep up with all these. Peter's way better about this stuff than I am. But he came up way after Daniel, um, and he called himself Epiphanes, Antiochus Epiphanes. And Epiphanes literally means a God-made manifest. So you notice here in verse 11, it says, It became greater than this little thorn, even as great as the prince of, of the host. And then down in verse 25, it says, um, And he shall even rise up against the prince of princes, it, so there's a sense in which this is quite literally being fulfilled in the way Antiochus like deems himself. Look, I'm God made manifest. I am God Himself. This guy had like a serious like ego complex. Like he was all about saying, I am, you know, basically, I am the I am. So what did he do? Well, the Seleucid policy at the time was to kind of respect the Jews and leave them to themselves and just kind of let them do their own thing, right? Like a typical kind of like Greco-Roman policy, just like let the natives be the natives, just as long as they pay us the money. This guy reversed that policy and went after the Jews in big time, heavy fashion. So let's see, I, threw, I have a slide of like kind of what I'm gonna be reading off here. But he banned circumcision. He banned festivals, uh, festivals and Sabbaths. He ended the sacrifices in the temple at six, uh, 167 BC, right? The Verse 11, where it says that regular burnt offerings were taken away, right? So he quite, he's quite literally fulfilling these things. He defiled the temple, so he was a Greek. He took, so Zeus, like, pigs were considered holy for Zeus. And if you've ever read your Bible for like five seconds, you know that pigs are like the no-no animal of the Old Testament. Like, they, they don't do bacon, they don't do pork chops, none of that stuff. 
And it's partly, primarily related because the pagan gods of the time all had this thing with pigs. So there's a separation that they, they, they had. So Antiochus took a pig all the way into the temple, sacrificed it on the Holy of Holies, and desecrated the temple. He put up a statue of Zeus in the, Jerus in, in the, in the temple of the Jews, just to basically say, like, I own you guys. Your gods are doing nothing. I'm the big cheese, right? He, so um, this is God's house, and he threw down God's house and trampled it and desecrated it. So then he also, he burned copies of scripture. Verse 12, you'll see there where it says that he threw truth to the ground, trampled truth to the ground. He burned copies of the, of the Hebrew Bible. And then, um, in one three-day period, he killed 40,000 Jews in Jerusalem. That's a conservative estimate. So in a three-day period, he destroyed, verse, 20, verse 24, he destroyed many mighty men and people who were the saints. He executed many who were faithful to God. So that's why when liberal scholars look at this, they're like, well, this is like for real, like point by point, right on top of who Antiochus Epiphanes was. So this is literally fulfilled and who he was and how he lived. So what we're going to do here is we're just going to say, oh, let me just give one more historical comment here before we move on. The result of this was what's called the intertestamental period, right? After after the Bible kind of closes up and there's still all these like 400 years until Jesus shows up, all of these political things that happened in Daniel 8 lay out what, you know, if you've ever been, a, if, you're, if you grew up Catholic or whatever and they've got like the Book of Maccabees and all that stuff, like the Book of Maccabees is what follows after all of this political stuff because the Jews are just kind of like, enough, and they lead up a result, the Maccabean result, a revolt. Dude, one of them was called Judas the Hammer. Bro, I want that name. <laughs> so they, they led this huge revolt in response to these things that happens in, in, Matthew, in Daniel 8, which then results in the existence of these super hyper-religious people you might have heard of called the Pharisees, and they give Jesus a lot of props. So just trying to connect your Old Testament to the New Testament. But here's what we're going to do. We're going to kind of step back, and we're going to say, okay, now that we kind of explain all that's going on here, because this is a lot. It's like, you've got like monsters going on, and you've got one ram with big horns, and then a goat who's got a conspicuous horn that turns into four, and it's like in time of epiphanies, and people are getting killed left and right. Like, this is a Godzilla film, right? All right. Amidst all of this, remember, God is the one calling the shots. God is the one who has said this is all going to happen way before it happens because he is the one calling the script. These are his people that have been captured and taken into Babylon and are suffering under the boot of Babylonian persecution. And they're trying to figure out, God, where are you in all of this? And so what God does is he says, he basically gives them a horror movie. It's going to get worse. But you know what? I'm in charge. I call the shots. The days are dark ahead, but I've got you. That's kind of the payoff of this chapter, right? The payoff of this chapter is to say, God has got you. Don't lose heart. It's a very similar, it feels very similar to what Paul reflects on in 2 Corinthians 4. Can we throw up 2 Corinthians 4? 2 Corinthians 4, 16. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, uh, Ernest Self is being renewed day by day. This is, the, this is the book of Paul where he meditates on his own suffering in ministry. And he says, look, the days are dark. This is really hard. The outer self is wasting away. But the inner self is being removed, so we don't lose, renewed, so we don't lose heart. So what I want to do is just kind of begin to turn back into the passage, and we're going to reflect on four things. Kind of like we're going to end with Paul here in First Corinthians four or Second Corinthians four, because what Paul is talking about there is a personal meditation. I think of the same dynamics of what we experienced in Daniel eight: scary monsters, horror movies, days are dark. How do we find and keep heart just to follow God when things is like this does not make sense at all? So here's what we're going to do. First thing we're going to pick up on here: how do we not lose? How do we know that God cares for us? and not lose heart when the future is dark. We anticipate God's power. Do you notice that over here? We read through this. Right? He's, his power shall be great, verse 24, but not by his own power, right? This is talking about Antiochus Epiphanes, right? There's a certain sense in which he had his own power, but then there was certainly political power behind him. There was a demonic element going on here. 
Not by his own power, he shall cause fearful destruction. He shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men, the people who are his saints. There is serious power going on here. When his his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand. In his own mind, he shall be great. Without warning, he shall destroy many, right? Remember that literal fulfilling of the, the 40,000 and three days that he killed. He shall even rise up against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken, but not by human hand. There is this element in the Bible where it talks about God's enemies. When they come up face to face with God, when they come up, they're like, God, I'm really going to come after you right now. They're gone. There's not a battle. There's not a fight. You notice that even in, the, in Psalm 22, where it's like, the, where it's a prediction of Jesus' sufferings, Jesus is dead, 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 and then he's alive and glorified. Right? It's just like it changes one verse to the next. Or in Revelation 20, it happens where um, Jesus is... Uh, it's talking about the final battle between God's enemies and himself. Revelation 20, verse 9. They all show up. They show up on the battlefield, and fire comes down, and they're gone. Like, there's no battle. Like, when it comes to actually God exercising his fight, all these movies that show, like, there's a, there's a war between heaven and hell and all that stuff, like, it's really just God giving permission for the demonic forces to do what fits his scheme for right now and how he's helping his people, serving his people, but ultimately his power calls the shots. He's not flustered. He doesn't have to get up from his throne. He basically has to say the word and his enemies are gone. Right? But it does mean that there are demonic powers that are really at force that we have to actually recognize and consider in our spiritual lives together. Right? People in the West are probably, like in America and Europe, are probably the only continents in the globe that actually don't really believe in demons. The rest of the world, ever go to South America, Africa, Asia, any of those places, they have a healthy understanding. Demons are real. There's real spiritual darkness. This stuff is no joke. Like, I'll tell you what, the most demonic places I've ever been, and this is not like a joke, it's like for real, the most demonic places I've ever been have been in courtrooms. Whenever I've been in courtrooms with any of you guys, and I'm sitting there trying to support you through the justice system, I don't know what it is, but there is like, when I'm seeing people lie through their teeth on the court stand, I just like, it's so demonic to me. Like, those are some of the more demonic experiences in my life where it's like, there is some, like, you're like, like a warping power going on here. I think that's why in Romans 8, Paul talks about, he says, for I'm sure, when you talk about, I'm sure that neither death nor life, those, that sort of list, he only just has powers, right? I'm sure that powers will not be able to keep us, separate us. I love that word there, I think. Will not be able to separate us from the love of God. Does it say will be able to? I can't see the. I'm sorry. My fault. For I am sure that powers will not be able to separate us from the love of God that is from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. He has a bunch of pairs outside of that, but powers, I think what he's talking about is this sort of thing that we see here kind of hinted at in Daniel 8. There are powers at work. There are real powers. They're scary. They're for real. I know some of you experience them, and you experience them in your lives, and they will be broken. God's power shows up, and it's not by human power that they're broken. God's power does show up. So you can imagine this book being given to the, to the people at the time, and they're like, all this dark stuff's going to come, and then God's power's going to show up. And the payoff is you need to anticipate God's power. That's a part of just holding on. You don't know what it's going to look like. You don't know how it's going to, you're going to experience it. And in fact, what this chapter does is it cuts down the monsters in our life. It cuts them down to size. We think of Godzilla size and really in God's economy. It's just, you know, two farm animals having a fight in the field. God's not overly stressed about how to manage the dark powers in our world. He's got them under his control. They are, in a certain sense, just animals to him. Right? We think of them as huge Godzilla things. For God, I've got it. I, I'm, not, I'm not fluffed here. I've got them under control. What are the little monsters of your life? I'm not, not saying kids. Is it an ex-spouse? Is it an addiction? Is it all the pandemic stuff? Is it, dear God, what are we doing in 10 days voting one president or the other? Like, whatever it is, what are the little monsters in your life? 
What are they're real things? Like I'm not trying to be trite or try to diminish them, but they are real things. They are for real, anxiety-inducing. You almost like Daniel, right? You begin to become catatonic, and you just can't figure out how to move forward in your life. I don't know what to do. This is so overwhelming. I God, I don't know how I'm going to handle this. Ian Dugan in his commentary says these monsters that seek to hurt you and trample you are nothing more than big sheep in the Lord's eyes. His love is with you, and they will be trampled down. What are these monsters that you experience in your life? To your God, they will not utterly destroy you. To your God, His love is so tied to you, His power is so for you, that they will be destroyed in a moment, in some surprising way that we cannot anticipate. Alright, we're going to keep moving forward because... I got. We got to keep moving forward. There's just a lot of things to cover here. So, how do we not lose heart when the days are dark? We resist Satan's, Satan's schemes. We resist Satan's schemes. So here we have verses 11 to 12. The little horn. Uh, sorry, let me read this from my Bible. It's just so hard to read. Over. Um. The little horn became great, even as great as the prince of the host. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown, and the host will be given over to it, together with the regular burnt offerings because of transgression. It'll be th- and it will throw down the truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. And then over verse 22 to 25, And the horn was broken in place which the four others arose, and, and the four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, who understands riddles, shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. He shall cause fearful destruction, and shall succeed in what he does, and destroy mighty men and the people who are his saints. And his, by his cunning he shall make the seed prosper under his hand, and, he shall, and in his own mind he shall become great. And without, without warning, he shall destroy men. So we saw in this when we were kind of trying to, when we were understanding that this was the work of Antiochus Epiphanes, that he was coming after God's people, but there was a spiritual force, a demonic force coming behind him that was aiming. Remember, we were talking about these all even though this guy was not nearly as good as, you know, in terms of global history, as great as Alexander the Great, there was a demonic power behind him that was focused on oppressing God's people that undermined their worship of God, that aimed at their relationship and identity with God himself. So that is a part of what the whole scheme of dark powers, of darkness and demonic powers focuses on, is saying, how do I get in? How do I separate God's people from worshiping him? Right? So that's what's going on here in Daniel. That's what's going on. We're going to try to apply this to us. So the reason I'm saying resisting Satan's schemes is in Ephesians 6. Can we throw that up there? Ephesians 6. We just have simply Paul saying, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And I think what we see in here with Antiochus's assault against God's people is the schemes of the devil. There's certain threads within that that we can kind of pull on and see. There are certain schemes that Satan goes after to say, I'm going to oppress God's people by doing you know, several things. But two, we're going to see three things here that he goes after. First thing is that Satan mocks the the sufficiency of God's sacrifice. So the first thing we need to be aiming at is keeping the sacrifice of Christ in your hearts. Keeping the sacrifice of Christ in your hearts because you notice how he went in and was like, God's whole sacrificial system, we're going to desecrate it. We're going to get rid of it and we're going to undermine it with this whole Zeus thing and the pigs and all that stuff. Satan will go after the the centrality and sufficiency of Christ in your hearts at full blast, at full bore, at all times. It's not that he's trying to get you to say, I'm not a Christian anymore. That's not what he's trying to say. He is wanting you to be somebody that says, I need Jesus plus fill in the blank. That's the point of demonic effect. The point is not to say, you need to just become an atheist and all that stuff. That's not what he's trying to say. The best tool for Satan is somebody who says they need Jesus plus something else. 
God's, God's sacrifice in the temple was to say, all I need for my relationship with God is what he has provided for me. And there, in the Old Testament days, there was this whole sacrificial system. After Jesus, we recognize that all of that was pointing towards Jesus and saying, what we need is God's, God's sacrifice, God's little lamb, if you want to put another monster on this, on the, on this playing field here. All we need is God's little lamb. You know, Mary had a little lamb. Squeezes by snow. That's not Jesus, just you know. <laughs> a little lamb. We need God's little lamb of, of Christ's sacrifice and the sufficiency of Christ as a centrality of our hearts. But Satan's goal is often to get us to say, look, it's Jesus plus something else. This is why we focus as a church on being so gospel centered in what we were about. And we are so easily tempted towards being it's Jesus plus something else. And we can feel, my only comments about the election are simply that, look, on the other side of the election, Jesus is still king. Like, we're, we're going to be okay. If you feel like if Trump gets elected, the world is going to fall apart. Or if you feel like if Biden gets elected, the world is going to fall apart. The world is going to fall apart, you know? <laughs> okay? Like, it's a common denominator. You know who's not going to fall apart or who's not overly fluffed on this whole thing? is Jesus Christ himself. And if Jesus Christ, who cares for the meek and lowly and anxious and fearful like us, we want him and him alone as the center of our hearts and worship. That's why we're just so committed to this whole, we are gospel-centered. We are committed to him being the center of who we are. So Thomas Boston, or Thomas Brooks, I'm sorry. The Puritan Thomas Brooks, he had this to say about this. He actually wrote a book called Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. Um, it's a little, it's called a Puritan paperback. It's like five bucks on Amazon. It's probably like eight bucks, but whatever. It's a great book. I would highly recommend it. It's a great little book. Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. He said, we have all things in Christ. Christ is all things to a Christian. If we are sick, he is a physician. If we thirst, if we are, lo- if, 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 when he says thirst, if we're longing for meaning and just, I just feel so apathetic in life. If we thirst, Jesus is a fountain. If our sins trouble us, Jesus is our righteousness. If we stand in need of help, Jesus is mine to save. If we fear death, Jesus is life. If we are in darkness, Jesus is light. If we are weak, Jesus is strength. If we are in poverty, Jesus is plenty. If we desire heaven, Jesus is the way. The soul cannot say, this I would have and that I would have. But having Jesus... He has all he needs. Amenity, perfectly, eternally. Eminently, perfectly, and eternally. Jesus Christ is the center point of all of history. He is the only grounding for your soul. And as Daniel 8 shows, there are dark forces at work to undermine the centrality of his place in your heart. Beloved, Keep them at the center of your heart. The second thing we're going to see here with the resisting Satan's schemes is to persist in community. You notice how in verse 24 that he, Antiochus not only eliminated circumcision, but then undermined their central identity point in the temple. He undermined their, their identity as people of God. He, under, he was attacking what it meant to just simply be somebody who belonged to the, to the Lord himself. He, his power shall be great, but not by his own power. He shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. Satan undermines the community of Jesus. Satan, Satan will seek to undermine this community. Satan will seek to undermine your fellowship with other believers. He will seek to undermine your commitment to being a part of God's family. I just want to issue this as a warning. Amidst all the pandemic, I realize that we all have valid reasons for being here or being at home. I'm not making any comment about people who are worshiping from home as being less than people who are worshiping here. But we must, and regardless of where we worship at home or here, we must be committed to each other and must press towards each other amidst a global dynamic, of the, the pandemic, all that stuff that would seek to, I uh, won't we'll skip church today, I'll watch it later. I'll skip mission on community. I don't like Zoom meetings. 
we need to press towards being with each other in whatever way is healthy and loving for other people. We must press towards that. A Christian on their own is easy pickings for Satan's sin in the world. Somebody who does not press towards our community of believers, and I'm not saying that has to be here. I'm saying that for any church ever. Like, I just don't care. There's a part of me that just says, we have to recognize there are reasons for why we're doing the Mass and all social distancing and Zoom and all that stuff. Those are all healthy and good, but we must commit. We must remember that these, there is a spiritual dynamic that will seek to gravitate us away. And that is a part of the, the spiritual forces against us. We must be committed towards community, even if it's uncomfortable or not our preferences. Last thing we'll see here, and then we'll keep moving on. Live in truth. This is pretty obvious from the passage, right? Tramples truth on the ground and tied his burn scripture. We need our Bibles open. We need our Bibles uh, read. We need our Bibles living in us. We need to read our Bibles on a regular basis. We need to be ingesting truth. I'm not going to read the whole quote, but Thomas Brooks talks about how he uses this other illustration to say it's not merely just the reading of the Bible that gets the Bible into us. It's the meditation of the Bible. And he uses the illustration of, of bees. What Bees, when they go to a flower, they don't just kind of like hop on it and just pick off the pollen and go off. They have to like burrow into the, the, the flower to get the hunt, to get the pollen, and spend time in it. Same time, we need to spend time meditating, ingesting, and just processing what the Bible has to say about who God is and who we are in Jesus. We need the meditative time. That, I, re- I recognize that if you've got young kids, that's hard to come by. Let me just recommend there is um, the Daily Lectionary Podcast. Lectionary Podcast, you can look it up in your, your Spotify thing or whatever you use. It is just a, it's somebody who reads a prayer, reads a few per- verses of scripture, and then reads a prayer. It's like 10 minutes long. It's a podcast, so you can like you can listen to it when you're in the bathroom. Like, I know it's gross to say, but I'm just saying. Like that's sometimes your only personal space you got, right? Right. You can do it wherever you are. You can. It's a 10 minute podcast, 10 15 minutes. You can use the Dwell Bible app. You just get the Bible and just say, you know what? I'm going to listen to, I don't know, Romans and the Dwell Bible app for the next month. I'm just going to listen to a chapter a day. I'm going to keep meditating, circling around, coming back to it. It is the meditation on God's truth that Satan is eager to undermine. And we don't have to become, you know, liberal scholars who deny the the inspiration of Scripture to devalue Scripture. We can just simply forget that it has anything to say to us. Not meditate on it on a regular basis. Not live within God's truth for us. Okay, we're going to move on. There's a lot to pull off here, and I'm just kind of like, we're trying to do our best. All right, you guys cool? We're going to move on? All right. I got the, it's funny to me to get like the mask on. Like I just, I like, it's just, yeah. It's funny from my perspective. Okay, uh, we need to, uh, how do we not lose heart on God, on being, that God has us amidst dark days? The third thing we want to pull off here is celebrate God's love for you. Verse 15 to 17, I, I'm, I'm running close on time, so here's what we're going to do. I'm going to talk about this, and we're going to move on to the last point real quick, okay? You will notice here, in verses 15 to 17, Gabriel is named. Daniel is named. There are only two angels in the entire Bible that are given names. Gabriel and Michael, they both show up in Daniel. They both show up in the New Testament. Gabriel actually shows up at the beginning of Luke. I'm not keeping on your ten toes. I'm not asking Jen. Jen's like the Bible, Bible knowledge geek over here. We, Gabriel shows up because Gabriel is the one who brings the message. Mary, beloved of God, right? Daniel gets the same message later in the book of Daniel. Gabriel shows up and he says, Oh, Daniel, greatly loved, right? So you have Gabriel's function, who's not only the one of two angels named, Gabriel's function is to be the one who, the messenger of God's love to other people. God's messenger of love to his people. And he is God's messenger of God's love to his specific people, right? You have Gabriel, who would have been one of the hosts that was under attack by all the spiritual forces earlier in the chapter, verse 10, right? He is the one being attacked 
And yet, he is the one being sent of God's special messenger of love to Daniel, to his people, to you. Right? I'm not saying that we're going to call out Gabriel right now. Like, Gabriel, tell us about God's love first. But it's in the Bible sufficient enough. God's specific love for Daniel and for you is a part of the preserving effect of his power in your life. It is how you face the dark days ahead of you, knowing amidst all this darkness, God sees me and he wants me to know that he loves me. He, he wants me to know that he's got me. There's a certain sense in which using the illustration of the stars in here is an echo of the promise to Abraham. Abraham was promised children of the multitude of stars. You are in view when it talks about stars in this picture here to say God's love for you has named every star. He's named every believer. He knows who you are. He celebrates who you are. He has a specific love for you that he then gives that special sense of his love for you so that you know that he's with you. Right. And I think that's kind of what's going on, like what's going on in this verse with the 2300 days. It comes out to six years, three months and one week. It's not like anything that like specifically comes to mind. And some of the commentaries talk about like, was that like is one day a year and all that stuff? I think what's going on, the phrasing is evenings and mornings, which is a certain echo of, the, of Genesis 1. Right? There's evening and morning, there's a new day. There's a recreative, a restoration work that goes on in God's specific love for you so that you know and can celebrate his love for you. I honestly, beyond that, like it's hard for me to determine exactly what's going on with that verse. I'm just going to be with Daniel. It's kind of like, I don't know. But I think the, Im the impact is that God sees you amidst the dark days of what's going on. Whatever's going on for you, whatever your monsters in your life are, God sees you. He's got it under control. His love is strong. His love is strong enough to support you, specifically, whatever your monsters are. It is stronger than the darkness around you, and it is placed on you by name. I think that's what we can draw from something. So we're going to end down here. You guys cool? These Daniel sermons are pushing my limit. We're going long. I'm sorry, guys. Are you guys okay? And Mike's cool. Mike, I've got Mike. We're good. All right. Go on. All right, we're going to end on the last verse of this chapter. So Daniel sees all this stuff, and he's like, okay, we got rams with two, one horn more than the other. We got goats with a conspicuous horn that gets destroyed by four. And then there's another horn. And uh, I'm getting, being talked to by angels. And he falls, and he faints twice, which actually happens in Revelation. John faints twice in front of um, an angel. So there's a bunch of echoes going on here all over the place. Here's what I want to do. Let's read verse 27, and then we'll, we'll, we'll close here. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Took some sick leave. And I rose and went about the king's business. But I was appalled by the vision, and I did not understand it. Here we have Daniel basically saying, probably like some of you, ah, okay, <laughs> I don't understand how some of this fits together. I, my devotions, my, my devotions lately have been almost exclusively focused on the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus preaches about monsters. So I remember in the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about false teachers and he says they're ravenous wolves. It's using similar language like this, right? He's putting on the outside what's going on on the inside. Daniel 8 is putting on the outside what's going on on the inside. And in that book, and in, in, in Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells us. Here, do we have this verse, uh, in, uh, Matthew 6, 31, 34? Jesus says, Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these, all these things, but your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself, for itself. Sufficient for today is its own trouble. Attend today's trouble. Do you see how that is echoed in how Daniel? Daniel's like, I just saw all this stuff. Took a few sick days to kind of figure out what's going on in life. And 
then he gets up and he's back to the king's business. He just focuses on what he's got to do. That's what Jesus is saying in Matthew 7, Matthew 6. There's a lot going on that you can't see or understand. There's a lot of monsters in this world that are going on behind the scenes. Your job, not after reading chapter 8, is not to go and figure out where are the demonic powers in my life. Your job, after going through all of Daniel 8, is just to say, God's got me, let's get back to work. Whatever your work is, whatever your job, whatever your life is, whatever your commitments are, Jesus is simply calling us, he's putting words, to, he's putting flesh in the words of what Daniel 8 is whispering to us. God's got it under control, whatever's going on. Focus, keep your eyes on the game. God can manage your monsters. You can't. Okay? Keep your eyes on today. Your father sees what's going on. So, with that in mind, let's just end with Second uh, Corinthians 4. We put that back up there. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 to 18. Sorry, Mike's getting hot. Let me just pull it up in my Bible here. My Bible app. This is the original Bible app here. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Daniel 8 was fulfilled, but it gives us a picture into seeing the unseen world around us. It is dark, it is scary, it is often overwhelming. It should feel like it's out of your control because it is. That's not the point, is to feel helpless. The point is to see who's writing the story. The point is to see that amidst all of this stuff, God was absolutely in control. God sees what's going on in your life, and he sees all the disappointments, the failures, the sufferings, and, the, and all the things that you don't want to happen that are coming your way or that have happened. And he sees that they are doing something to you on the inside to change you from being somebody who is driven by those things and somebody who is absolutely controlled by these monsters in your life is seeing like, you know what? These are just sheep. These are just goats. These are just rams in my father's kingdom. He's got me. My God's got it under control. I can, whatever the days ahead are coming, not too concerned about it. He's got those under control. He understands tomorrow. I can live with him today knowing that he's got it. He's got it under control. So that when you face dark days, when you, the days ahead of you are, are dark and the future seems bleak and gloomy, you know that God's got you. That's the point of Daniel. God's got you. Let's pray. Father, we pray that as we, we face whatever dark days, maybe it's happy days ahead of us, but we can all kind of feel the sense of gloom and just uh, foreboding. And Father, we pray that you would be with us who experience your kindness and mercy to us and that we would know that you've got it. You've got it under control and that we can trust you to take care of us. So we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.